If you have your Bibles with you, I'd invite you to open them with me this morning to the book of Judges, Judges chapter 8. If you want, you can follow along with the insert found in your bulletin or grab a Bible on the back cart just so you know if you've glanced at your watch or your uh, phone. I am aware of the time. Uh, I was aware of all that would be involved in this service, uh, giving opportunity for testimony from Sacred Road. And so I have planned accordingly this uh, in other words, will be a shorter than usual sermon, so you can just grab, you know, breathe a sigh of relief. Um, it will, though, keeping with where we've gone in Judges, it will be, though, a longer than usual sermon text, which has been the case in the book of Judges. There's nothing I can do about it. Uh, I want you to understand the flow of the story and uh, the narrative that we have been reading and following. Uh, we were away, those of you who were here last week, we were away from our study last week as uh, Nathaniel Thompson was with us. This is Sermon 8 in our series in the book of Judges, and this is Sermon 3 on the character Gideon, a man who you'll remember uh, we called a reluctant deliverer when God chose to call him, a man who God had to patiently gird up, speaking identity over him. And while Gideon had to be assured multiple times by the Lord in his weakness, in his struggle of faith, through a fleece, remember, through the mouth of one of his enemies, ultimately, what did the Lord do? The Lord used him in his weakness for his glory. And what an encouragement that is to us in our weakness. Remember, Gideon fought for the Lord's honor in his hometown. He led an army of 300 in the victory of the enemies of Midian. And so as we jump back into the story this morning of Gideon, the Midianites have been defeated, at least almost have been defeated. This story that we're going to read today is really stage two in the battle for the Midianites. Remember, it began with the Israelites, the 300 on the hillside with torches and smashing jars, and the Lord turned Midianite against Midianite, and they ravaged one another, and now the Lord's people are in pursuit God's enemies are on the run, and Gideon is hot on their trail. And it's in this passage, just before I get to it, that we begin to see two shifts, and I want to hint at them so you'll see them as I read it to you this morning. The first is you'll notice that the Lord is noticeably absent in this chapter. We don't hear as much about the Lord's doing. And the writer is communicating to us that indeed God's people are getting more and more distant from Yahweh. And secondly, Gideon himself is beginning to change, and it's not a change 
for the better. Here we begin to see his life spiral downward as Israel's corporate and collective life has begun to do as well. And so listen as I read. I invite you to stand if you're able. Judges chapter 8, verses 1 through 32. Listen as I read. This is God's holy word. Then the men of Ephraim said to him, What is this that you have done to us, not to call us when you went to fight against Midian? And they accused him fiercely, and he said to them, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of Abizer? God has given into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. What have I been able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger against him subsided when he said this. And Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed over. He and the 300 men who were with him, exhausted and yet pursuing. So he said to the men of Succoth, Please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted. And I am pursuing after Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. And the officials of Succoth said, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hand? that we should give bread to your army? So Gideon said, well then, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmunna into my hand, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. And from there he went up to Penuel and spoke to them in the same way. And the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Succoth had answered. And he said to the men of Penuel, when I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. Now Zeba and Zalmunna were in Karkor with their army, about 15,000 men, all who were left of the army of the people of the east. For there had fallen 120,000 men who drew the sword. And Gideon went up by the way of the tent dwellers east of Nobah and Jogbeha and attacked the army, for the army felt secure. And Zeba and Zalmunna fled, and he pursued them and captured the two kings of Midian, Zeba and Zalmunna, and he threw all the army into a panic. Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from the battle by the ascent of Ares. And he captured a young man of Succoth and questioned him, and he wrote down for him the officials and elders of Succoth, 77 men. And he came to the men of Succoth and said, Behold, Zeba and Zalmunna, about whom you taunted me, saying, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hand that we should give you bread to your men who are exhausted? And he took the elders of the city, and he took thorn, the thorns of the wilderness and briars, and with them taught the men of Succoth a lesson. And he broke down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. And then he said to Zeba and Zalmunna, where are the men whom you killed at Tabor? And they answered, as you are, so were they. Every one of them resembled the son of a king. And he said, they were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had saved them alive, I would not kill you. So he said to Jether, his firstborn, rise and kill them. 
But the young man did not draw his sword, for he was afraid because he was still a young man. Then Ziba and Zalmunna said, Rise yourself and fall upon us. For as the man is, so is his strength. And Gideon arose and killed Ziba and Zalmunna, and he took the crescent ornaments that were on their necks, on the necks of their camels. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And Gideon said to him, said to them, let me make a request of you. Every one of you, give me the earrings from his spoil. For they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, we will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak, and every man threw, it in the, threw in it the earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was a 1,700 shekels of gold, besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, and besides the collars that were around the necks of the camels. And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city in Ophrah, And all Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more. And the land had rest 40 years in the days of Gideon. Jerubbabel. Jerubbaal, excuse me, Jerubbaal, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives, and his concubine who was in Shechem also bore him a son, and he called his name Abimelech. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash, his father, at Ophrah of the Abizarites. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Be seated. As we look at this last chapter of Gideon's life, I want us to focus our hearts briefly on a warning and an invitation for us this morning. A warning and an invitation. First of all, the warning, three words. Beware of success. Beware of success. Well, I suspect we all in this room want to be successful, don't we, in our endeavors. Success isn't necessarily a bad thing for us to pursue. And yet there is this phrase, perhaps you've heard it, don't let it go to your head. Don't let it go to your head. If you're like me, you've heard that encouragement and reminder more than once in your life, spoken in love by someone who loves you. That's because everyone knows that success in our lives can so easily breed pride. And pride, in turn, breeds forgetfulness of God and forgetfulness about his authority. And so often those things can then turn into the wheels 
figuratively speaking, completely coming off. It's an equation for disaster. A life where the self becomes king. For good or bad, I think mostly bad, we live in a day and age of high-profile servants of the Lord. High-profile servants of the Lord, like Gideon was a high-profile servant of the Lord. And unfortunately, in our day and age, we are becoming less and less surprised when these high-profile servants of the Lord fall from grace. It's tragic. You know some of the names. I don't have to speak them to you. Well, we certainly don't know their motives. We don't know all of their hearts and all their stories are not alike. They all remind us of a danger, a danger seen in the example of Gideon. You see, if we had stopped the story of Gideon, if we had stopped with just chapters 6 and 7 and hadn't gone on to chapter 8, if we had 6 and 7 and then Hebrews 11 where Gideon is mentioned in the hall of faith, If that's all we had, Gideon certainly wouldn't have been perfect, but he certainly would have been different than we are going to feel about him today. What we learn and are challenged with today is the struggle to finish well. The struggle to finish well. I'm going to skip the first four verses. You can talk to me about those if you're curious about what's going on in verses one to four, but for the sake of time, I'm just going to jump into Gideon's story starting in verse four as this band of 300 men comes to these towns, the town of Succoth and the town of Peniel, both towns in the uh, land that is controlled by the tribe of Gad. So we're still in Israelite territory. They're hungry. They're in need of replenishment from those whom they assume are are on the same team. Here we see the tribal structure in Israel beginning to fracture. We see in the first four verses as well as the people of God struggle to believe God's promises and God's means and God's man. Now it's good for us to know, it's good for you to know that Succoth and Peniel were border towns. And so what did that mean? That, well, that means that their hesitancy is somewhat understandable. Remember the Midianites were like locusts They came flying into the valley at harvest time. They were nomads. They came flying into the valley at harvest time to ravage all the hard work of God's people. And so as they came from outside of the territory of the promised land, what were the first towns that felt the brunt of the Midianites? Succoth and Peniel. And so their concern as Gideon comes with his 300 men and asks for help, asks for replenishment, their concern is we better not pick sides prematurely. 
Because Gideon doesn't quite yet have these guys in his grasp. And if he doesn't get them, and we helped him, then we're just going to pay for it. Because Ziba and Zalmunna are going to come back and say, you helped that guy that was trying to kill us. And so they're hedging their bets. Their hesitancy isn't crazy, but at its heart, it is unbelief. And it does show us the fracture, as I said, of God's people. But the focus I want us to have is on Gideon. I want you to think about how Gideon could have responded to the men of Succoth and Peniel. How could he have responded? Well, he could have prayed. He could have prayed. He's asked for the Lord's guidance more than once. He's pleaded for signs that this is what he should do. He's pleaded for reassurance that this is the way he should go. Where is that humility with Gideon now? Or he could have encouraged them to trust in God's promise, in a grace that had already been shown vividly to him in his life, in his leadership, in God's display of strength, in his weakness. But he doesn't pray. He doesn't seek the Lord's face in humility. He doesn't encourage God's people, his fellow Israelites. Instead, he gets angry that they're doubting him. He seems insulted. Remember, this is Gideon who was once weak, who was once incredibly indecisive, and now he is ruthlessly decisive, a warlord of sorts with threats that he threatens, and then we learn in our text, he carries out on his way back, whipping the leaders of the town with thorns and briars. What is going on? I propose to you that Gideon is becoming a victim of his own success or his own perceived success. You see, Gideon has seemingly abandoned God's agenda for his own. How do we know this? We'll look at verses 18 through 21. 18 through 21. These verses talk to us about uh, his confrontation with Zebra and Zalmunna, these kings of Midian. And we learn from these verses that Gideon's, on Gideon's mind is not the honor and the glory of God, But why has he been chasing these men ruthlessly? Why has he now questioned them? Because this is personal. Ziba and Zalmunna, somewhere in their history, killed Gideon's own brothers. He says even if if they had spared their lives, he would have spared theirs. But since they killed his brothers, this is personal. This is personal. And he's going to embarrass them by, he's not going to do it himself. He's going to have his son, a young man, do it. And the young man can't do it. And so he does it himself when they egg him on to finish the job. And and we, we ask, what has happened to Gideon? 
What has happened to the lesson of the 300? Remember Gideon, the 300? That wasn't you that did that. That was the Lord that did that. A couple weeks ago, we brought to mind when we talked about God using our weakness for his strength and for his glory. We talked about the the thorn in Paul's side. Remember, Paul prayed that that thorn would be removed. And yet God kept it there. God kept it there as a constant reminder of weakness and of a need for grace. Gideon needed his own thorn. Beware of success. Success breeds pride, which breeds forgetfulness, which produces an idolatry of self. And that's exactly where Gideon's story then goes. You see this new confident Gideon, decisive and strong. He's catching the eye of all the Israelites, all these Israelites who have longed for and wanted an earthly king. And their longing for an earthly king is not necessarily a good thing. This is Israel forgetting that they were a unique people. They didn't need a king because they were a theocracy. God, Yahweh, the creator of heaven and earth, was their king. They were ruled by God himself. And yet that wasn't enough for Israel. They wanted a king and they see in Gideon something Oh, they like this ruthless, decisive Gideon, confident and proud. And so they say, rule over us, for you saved us from the hand of Midian. And we say, whoa, 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 time out. Who saved you from the hand of Midian? Gideon didn't even have to lift a sword. All he had to do was smash some jars and blow some trumpets, and the Lord did the rest. And again, this is another opportunity for Gideon to speak the Lord into this situation. And while Gideon's answer in verse 23 seems initially great, right? Uh, What does he say in verse 23? I will not rule over you. My son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. There you go, Gideon. Way to go. The answer sounds good, but if it looks like a duck and walks like a duck, it's probably a duck. All that we see after this phrase betrays this phrase. Because Gideon's actions reveal that he says he doesn't want to be their king, but he acts just like a king. And he does that in three ways. One, he demands, or four ways. One, he demands tribute. He says, hey, I got an idea. Bring me your gold. Bring me, your leader, your gold. Now that sounds eerily familiar for God's people. Exodus 32, Aaron at the foot of Mount Sinai, bring me your gold. But they do. They bring their gold to their leader who they long that he would be king. And what does he do? He makes himself 
an ephod. Now, what is this ephod? Well, this ephod was a vest. It was a vest that the high priest wore as he interceded on behalf of God's people before Yahweh himself. Israel already had an ephod. The high priest had the ephod. They didn't need another ephod. And so what is Gideon doing? Gideon is saying, I'm going to make myself a high priest. I'm going to make myself a channel of God's wisdom, a channel of Yahweh's wisdom. Bring me your gold. Let me be your king. Let me be your priest. And at the end of our passage, we learn that Gideon has surrounded himself with wives, even has a concubine, an illegitimate son. It's a very kingly thing to do with someone who has been given a lot of power, a lot of authority. And then finally, what does Gideon name his illegitimate son? Abimelech. Abimelech. My father is king. My father is king. You see, abuse of power, sexual sin, idolatry, it's all here. And Gideon is riding this wave of success away from the Lord to self-importance. Brothers and sisters, beware of success. Let Gideon's example remind you, beware of success, beware of your pride. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity, that classic work, he devotes an entire chapter to what he entitles the great sin, the sin of pride. I think I've quoted from that chapter before, but I want to read this quote. He says, the Christians are right. It is pride which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. Other vices may sometimes bring people together. You may find good fellowship and jokes and friendliness among drunken people or unchaste people, but pride always means enmity. It is enmity. And not only enmity between man and man, but enmity to God. And so the warning this morning, which is spoken elsewhere in James chapter 4, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. 1 Corinthians 10, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall, is to beware of your success. Well, that brings us to the invitation, and we need to close. We've been warned, but what does this story proclaim about Yahweh's relationship with his people? We see something, something profound from the life of Gideon, from the example of Gideon. But what does this tell us about Yahweh? Well, the invitation is this. You've heard me use this language before. Receive and rejoice in Yahweh's rest. Receive and rejoice in Yahweh's rest. I grew up in the church and in Sunday school, I remember studying Gideon. I can almost see the pictures, the illustrations, the drawings of the Israelites on the top of the hills with the jars and the, and the torches and the trumpets. 
I remember the fleece. I remember the torches. I remember the smashing. I remember the confusion and the chaos in the Midian camp. But I don't remember a Gideon who left Israel worse off than how he found her. Now that Gideon was left out of my Sunday school stories. We are all reminded that Gideon is not the hero that we thought he was. He's not the hero that we need. In spite of him, yes, the Lord gives the land rest for 40 years. This is the last time that we will see this phrase in the book of Judges. There will be no more rest for God's people after this. You see, Gideon's story and the whole trajectory of the book of Judges is a longing for more. Gideon was commendable, particularly early on in his life, but he was woefully inadequate. He was just a glimmer of the deliverer that God's people truly need. You see, Gideon struggled to believe. Jesus confidently lived out God's promises. Gideon let the seduction of power take him over. Jesus resisted that temptation for the sake of the Father's will. Gideon's pride became prominent even in his weakness, whereas Jesus humbled himself to the point of death, even when all authority and honor was due him. Gideon couldn't finish well, but Jesus said, it is finished, having completed all that the Father called him to do. Gideon wanted to be priest. He wanted to be king. Jesus rightfully is. Do you see where I'm going? Gideon could only provide a short amount of rest for God's people. He points us to our need for Jesus, the one who brings true and eternal rest. Brothers and sisters, let Gideon's story, his example challenge you, let his successes warn you, let his failures drive you to want more of Jesus. Because that's the only way that humility and faith can truly be worked into your life. What does Jesus say? Abide in me, for apart from me, you can do nothing. Let's pray.